0: and enter promo code FTM400. That's FTM for firing the man 400 to get your first $400 in reimbursements commission-free. How much money does Amazon owe you?
1: If someone steals your product photos, Amazon has a process where you can go and say, Amazon, under the penalty of perjury, I think these sellers are using my product photos. You need to take them down. And I think my record is like 48 minutes from the time I filed a complaint to having another listing taken down. And it's not because I'm an amazing lawyer and that's not because I was able to just draft the most beautiful takedown complaint ever. It's literally because Amazon self-interested. Welcome, everyone, to the Firing the Man podcast, a show for anyone who wants to be their own boss. If you sit in a cubicle every day and know you are capable of more, then join us. This show will help you build a business and grow your passive income streams
0: in just a few short hours per day. And now your hosts, serial entrepreneurs, David Schomer and Ken Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to the Firing the Man podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Robert Wright. Robert is the owner of Right Private Label Law, which specializes in intellectual property protection in the e-commerce space. Robert is passionate about intellectual property law and has helped hundreds of clients across the globe protect their intellectual property on Amazon, Shopify, and other e-commerce platforms. Welcome to the show, Robert. Robert. Hey, thanks. I appreciate you all having me. Absolutely. So to start things off, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I'm a lawyer by trade, right? So that's that's what's the uh, on the 10. So lawyer by trade, got into law, and I kind of blame my parents, right? Like as a kid, uh, there would always be, you know, courtroom dramas on in the background. They love to have the TV on. So, you know, Perry Mason or Law and Order, Matlock was was big in the household. Uh, and as I headed off to college, trying to figure out well, what in the world am I going to do with myself, I... Uh, interestingly enough, started kind of going down the psychology road. I'm like, yeah, psychology seems kind of neat. Took one class in that and said, nope, that's not for me at all. Uh, and thankfully, was taking a government class kind of at the same time. And that was that kind of had a little bit of a, of a law lean to it. And then that led to a constitutional law class, which I loved, which led to an international law class, which I really liked. And before you know it, I uh, had enough credits to be a, a pre-law major. And what do pre-law majors do? They go off to law school. Uh, the cool thing though, was, you know, as I, I was, I was kind of embracing the law and trying to figure out how I wanted to make that my profession. It was also the advent of the internet really becoming what it's, what it, what it is now. Right. And So there was file sharing and there was Napster and iMesh and bear share and all that sort of stuff going on. And, uh, my music collection admittedly went from a couple of songs to a lot of songs. And I thought that was pretty great. I thought technology was pretty cool. And when that all got shut down, uh, I wanted to understand why, you know, why this, the very first thing that they teach you day one of kindergarten that you should share with your friends, why is that so wrong? Right? So I went into law school with an interest in the law, an interest in technology an interest in what I ultimately came to learn was intellectual property uh, and quickly learned that, you know what, it's not sharing with your friends thats stealing and stealing is wrong. They also teach you that in kindergarten that you shouldn't steal. Um, And as I moved out of law school, and, and tried to think, well, how, what do I want to practice? Right. You know, do I, do I want to do personal injury? Do I want to do criminal defense? Do I want to, you know, do I want to be Matlock? I said, no, I want to do what I love and what I'm passionate about, which is trademarks and copyrights and talking about patents and working with entrepreneurs. And that led me to the launch of my law practice. And that was well and good until the day that someone walked through my virtual doors, I have a virtual law practice, and I got a Facebook message that said, I've been hijacked, can you help? And all of a sudden, like, I was, I was kind of freaking out, admittedly, I'm like, Oh, my God, there's something, you know, this, my client is in the back of a car somewhere. And this is like taken, and he's getting a message out. And, you know, what about how am I going to help this guy? You know, and I'm like, you know, what do you need? Where are you? Can you, you know, what what sounds do you hear around you, you know, trying to identify the location? And he's like, and he said, "No, my my Amazon listing's been hijacked. Do you do that sort of thing?" I'm like, "Hijacked? What is this?" And so that was really my introduction to the world of, of Amazon law or private label law. And I quickly, it was interesting. After that, people started coming through my doors, and it was no longer, "Hey, can you help me with my trademark?" or "Hey, I've got these product, or I've got these uh, photos, and I need to, to copyright. Can you help me with that?" It was literally, "I've been hijacked. Can you help?" Uh, brand registry—is that something that you assist with? Can you help me get brand gated? Uh, you know, this, this, all this very Amazon-specific and private label-specific nomenclature started popping into my world, and I said, you know what, this is this is really cool. Like, I'm I'm all about this, and so I actually went to a mentor and said, teach me teach me how to sell private label because this 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 is a brave new world here, right? The ability to kind of sit and make money while you sleep, and I want to learn about that. But then I selfishly did it because. I wanted to help support my clients. And so when someone would come to me and say, I've been hijacked, I want to understand what that means. I want to understand how that affects their business. And so my thought was by stepping into their shoes, that was really the only way I was going to be able to do that. And so a uh, long, long answer to your question is I'm a lawyer, I'm an intellectual property geek, and I'm a private label seller, and I couldn't be happier.
0: Very nice. Very nice. Well, I'd like to start with getting your listing hijacked. That's happened to me. That's happened to Ken. And uh, for some of our listeners who are unfamiliar with what this means, can you kind of explain that and then talk us through the steps that one may take uh, in order to correct this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions about Amazon is that when you create a product detail page, you own it. You'll You'll hear sellers talk about it all the time, my listing. It's not your listing you know, it's your product photos and it's, it's your product and it's, you know, it's your advertising copy, you know, the details of the product listing page are yours, but the page itself is owned by Amazon, right? By creating that listing and by giving you the opportunity to create that listing, all Amazon has given you is the right to create a page in their big ginormous catalog of things, right? And so understanding that you don't own your product detail page and that anybody, For Amazon's own terms of service, anyone selling the exact same product, not only can they list on your listing, they have to, or they're violating Amazon's terms of service. So first I want to dismiss this notion that, oh, it's my listing. It's not your listing. It is a listing in a catalog and it's brand specific and it's got UPCs associated with it. And there's all sorts of things that make it feel like yours, but it's not yours, right? Hijacking is technically, you know, when you go to Amazon and you press that buy box, whoever has that buy box gets the sale right and for most private label sellers if you're doing everything right you're you're going to be the only one that's ever associated with that buy box but as people have returns or people are counterfeiting or people are hijacking they're going to land on your listing they're going to be in the other sellers selling this right and if they ultimately undercut you on price well guess what they're going to take control of the buy box and all of a sudden you know, for that, for the normal Amazon person, you know, the consumer who doesn't know anything about the stuff that we do as private label sellers, they don't, they don't, they don't care who they're buying it from. They just, they see it, they press buy and then, you know, it gets shipped off to them, right? That, that doesn't affect them at all. It affects us as sellers though, because we want the sales. We want to be the ones in control of the buy box making money. And so hijacking is when someone who shouldn't has taken that buy box from you uh, and is effectively stealing your sales. Now, What do you do about it when it happens? Well, at this point, you kind of have to ask yourself, am I brand registered or am I not brand registered? Okay. Brand registry is a program that Amazon offers to its seller to community. Uh, Basically, you get better listings. You get access to enhanced brand content. You get more advertising opportunities, things like storefronts and sponsored ads but thirdly and kind of most importantly from a protecting your brand perspective it gives you access to a dedicated support team that's staffed 365 days a year 24/7 and if you have an issue someone is copying your listing someone's on your you know taking the buy box from you you can report it to this team and per amazon's own statistics 94% of the time that team is going to take action in your favor which is a really good thing right so If you have a listing that's been hijacked and your brand registered, the simplest thing is to work through the brand registry portal, report it to the team and let Amazon take care of it for you. If that's not the circumstances that you find yourself under, maybe you're a newer seller and you haven't brand registered, meaning you haven't invested in a trademark registration. Well, then you've got to use Amazon's own terms to your benefit, right? If we know that anybody can list on a product detail page, Provided they're selling the exact same product, what you need to do is figure out a reason why the person who's hijacked your listing isn't selling the exact same product. Now, there's a lot of different strategies that you can employ. You know, I really encourage uh, sellers who are worried about this, they're not brand registered yet, to really make their branding uh, predominant in their product photos. Don't just, if you're selling a spatula and maybe you've got a nice little sticker on the box or whatever, but you decide not to show that in the product photos, I think that's to your detriment. You want to make it very clear that that product detail page is for your brand of spatula, right? It's actually better if you can put the the, uh, branding on the product itself, show that in the product detail photos so that if I'm a hijacker and I'm looking at this listing, I know, man, this is a spatula. It's got special branding in it. That's going to be difficult to to hijack. I'm going to get get found out. I'm going to go move to a listing that's a little easier to to, to take the buy box from because I don't want to get in trouble as a hijacker. Because if I get in trouble too many times, my account will get shut down, and then I'll have to try to start a new one. It's just a it's a bad game. So number one, making your branding very you know predominant in your in your product detail page. Uh, Otherwise, bundling your item or adding a bonus item, you know, a spatula with a Um, What would be a good thing for a spatula? Maybe like an egg ring or something, right? Together. Small, cheap little bonus item not only shows additional value to your customer, but it also makes it more difficult to hijack. If I'm a hijacker coming to a listing and I know I've got to provide both a spatula and an egg ring, okay, I don't have those. That's going to be a pain in the butt to deal with. I'm going to move on to the next listing. So just naturally doing some things that are preventative like that will keep you uh, from being hijacked. But in the event that you are, do a test buy and then, you know, take down your, your order number, take photos of the product in the box when it arrives. If you want to take a video of you opening the box just to keep everything above board and document, document, document. But your job at that point is basically to figure out as many reasons why what you received is different than the listing and then reporting that to Amazon through their uh, it's the Amazon report infringement portal uh, and just saying, hey, listen, I'm a seller. And this listing is for a spatula and it's uh, here's the UPC code associated with the spatula. And we've got a sticker on the box with the branding on it. And I bought from this other seller, here's the order number, here's some photos and you can see the spatula, doesn't have the sticker on it. It's a generic spatula, it doesn't have the branding, the UPC sees, seems to be missing. Uh, oh, by the way, the box that I have is a red box and this one came in a white box, just difference, 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 difference. And again, coming at it from a perspective of, I'm not saying this person can't sell a spatula. I'm just saying that if they're selling a spatula on this product detail page, it has to match 100%. Here's why it doesn't. They need to go off and make their own product detail page. Um, I've used, prior to me being brand registered with my brand, I've, I've had to do that a number of times. That strategy has been very successful for me. It's a little bit of a pain because you do have to place a test buy. Um, but you know, that's just part and parcel of doing business on online these days and especially on Amazon. So just, you're going to bake that into your time and a little bit of your uh, money in your coffers too, because you're going to be buying some spatulas that you, you may or may not want. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: very nice. So I'm sure there are some of our listeners right now that are thinking, I have no intellectual property, uh, mechanisms in place. Yeah, I that's not for inventors my stuff.
1: And, and people like that, right? <laughs> right? Like I'm a seller. I don't have any intellectual property. Yeah, I get that a lot, which is which is interesting. And there's nothing that's further from the truth. I mean, you have your brand name. I mean, private label selling, your private label is a brand name, right? Uh, a brand name is trademarkable, right? Names, logos, slogans, all proper trademarks, as long as they're associated with a product. Uh, and if you're doing that in your business, you absolutely have intellectual property and it deserves to be protected. As it relates to uh, trademarks, you don't have to register to have one. So the way trademarks work is, as soon as you put a name, logo, or slogan on a product, you have rights in the geographic area where you sell. Now, for traditional retailers, that's that's fine. You know, you can have a nice little brick and mortar store here in Louisville, Kentucky, and about fifty miles around, people come to the store and they know the brand. And you know, I'm never going to be selling to California or Utah or Idaho or. Wherever else, and, and life is fine, right? I don't need to register anything because I've got my little sphere of influence. If I had to try to enforce my rights, I would, I would have the illegal ability to do that. But when you sell online, you sell a little bit of everywhere, but not really anywhere, right? You're selling in pockets. I love to look at my Amazon report to see where in the world am I selling these things, right? And it's it's just random. Um, and so to you know geographic pockets of influence don't really work in the the online world. And so registering a trademark in the country that you sell, so here in the States, be the United States Patent and Trademark Office, all of a sudden your geographic sphere of influence is the entire United States. It's not just little bubbles of where you sell. Uh, And specifically for Amazon, that trademark registration is gonna be your key of entry into the brand registry program. The brand registry program is going to give you the better listings with the enhanced brand content, the additional advertising opportunities, and then the, uh, the brand enforcement portal. So in terms of intellectual property, as a seller, you absolutely do. You've got your, your trademarks, your name, your logo, your slogan. I'd also say that you have copyrightable works. And this is something that sellers miss a lot, right? When you go and take product, you have product photos taken or you're taking the product photos, those photos are copyrightable works of authorship. Your retail packaging. You know, if you come up with some designs on the box, or maybe it's a stylized box, it's a special type of box, um, that's, that could be a copyright. The design certainly is, and the stylization of the box could be copyrightable. Uh, the listing detail, the product detail page, the sales copy, again, a copyrightable asset. If you have an instruction manual or a book or you know, manual that you're putting with your product, copyrightable. Sometimes the product itself, if you've designed it is actually copyrightable as well. So if you sell a pool float and it's in the shape of a donut and it's a donut that you've created, that's a copyrightable asset. Again, all things that can be you know protected uh, by registering your copyright at the United States Copyright Office if you're here in the state. One word of caution though, As you go out and you hire people to take your product photos or hire people to create your logo or hire people to design your donut pool float, um, the way copyright law works is a little bit counterintuitive. Just because you pay someone to create a work like that doesn't mean that you own it. Okay. Copyright law really respects the rights of authors, right? And so when you hire someone to take those product photos, they may deliver the JPEGs or the PDFs or the AI files or however they're delivered, and you own those files, but the author continues to own the copyright, unless you get what's called a copyright assignment agreement. Sometimes it's called a work made for hire agreement, basically a contract that says this, this photograph uh, that you're taking, Mr. Photographer, uh, those are you know copyrightable works of authorship, and they're works for hire, under copyright law, and to the extent they can't be works for hire, all right title and interest in and the work is being assigned to me, the person paying the bill. You've got to have that specialized agreement in place. Otherwise, you only own half of what you actually intended to own, which are things like product photos, uh, product detail page, sales copy, uh, carton design, uh, stylized box design, manuals, that sort of thing, or specifically if you're having a specialized product design and it's a, it's more of a graphical work, things like pool floats, maybe you have a spatula that's in the shape of, you know, maybe instead of just a boring basic uh, spatula, it's in the shape of a unicorn or a panda bear or something like that design element would be copyrightable. Uh, And and just that's free. uh, It's a blank check. Anybody that wants to go out and sell spatulas that are, uh, have unicorn uh, parts on them. You can go, go to town with that. That's, uh, that's fine. Um, I would also say the other aspect would be patents. Now, I as a as a seller, when I think about patents, their utility patents and their design patents, I spend most of my time t- time trying to avoid patents, uh, as opposed to patenting something. You know, getting it getting it properly filed and then enforcing it. Uh, it seems to be more work than a lot of sellers are really able to do. Um, but if you have something that is unique, novel, non-obvious, you know, you've got a spatula that has a special button that flips a certain way that's unique to the spatula space, that's possibly patentable. If you have a kind of a unique design, it's not a unicorn or a panda bear sort of design. Maybe it's just, you know, smooth edges or curves or something, then you possibly have a design patent, uh, in play, Again, if you see something that's unique with the way that your products look or unique uh, with the way that they function, you should be thinking patent, and that may or may not be something that you want to invest in protecting. So, lots of intellectual property in play. Just because you're selling private label, just because you're finding stuff off a shelf, putting your brand name on it, getting it to market, uh, it doesn't mean that you're not being innovative. That doesn't mean that you're not being entrepreneurial. It doesn't mean that you don't have anything to protect. In fact, Uh, you know, it it couldn't be anything to the contrary. You've got a lot to protect. It's just a matter of, of which elements you want to protect and invest in.
0: I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into the patent conversation. And I hear sellers run into this all the time where they have a, a very good idea. It's a, a unique novel idea, uh, but it's unproven in the market. And so they are, they need to order inventory. Uh, they need to get all their product. Fo- there are all these expenses that rack up before they've even made a dollar or this product's been proven in the market. And, and then you add patent protection on top of that, which I think is very important, right? But it, it's, it's another layer of expense. So what would be your advice to somebody that has a really good idea, has capital constraints, and but also wants to protect the, this idea? Uh, what what's the right time to file? And what, you know, what general commentary would you give to that person?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a good question, because it's very much a reality for a lot of sellers that are doing something innovative, right? As folks come to me, and they're they're like, listen, I've got this really cool idea. And I think it's going to be, you know, something really special in the marketplace. But it's not proven yet. And I don't really know. And I'm going to have to you know, invest in a mold or I'm going to have to invest in some R and D expenses. And should I patent it? My question is always back to them is always this. Okay. Do you, if you, if you do have the money to invest in the actual patenting, right? Do you also have the money to invest in the enforcement? And I think, I think sellers do themselves a disservice when they're like, okay, I can scrounge together You know, $2,000 for the design patent. I can scrounge together $10,000 to get the utility patent filed. But if you don't have any money left in the coffers once you're in market, once the patenting, you know, paperwork has made it through the prosecution process to actually go around and like take down everybody, then I don't know that it was really worth the investment in the first place. So my, my first conversation with folks is don't just look at do I have enough money to file? It has to be, do I have enough money to file and do I have enough money to start enforcement? Because, you know, without without that enforcement piece, uh, you've just got a nice fancy piece of paper sitting in a drawer. It's not doing you much good. Right. Um, Other considerations that I have are, you know, the design patent route. Really is is the more affordable of the two routes. I mean, I just quoted the two thousand for the design patent, at least ten thousand for a utility patent. Those are ballpark figures. That, I mean, they vary depending upon the nature of, of the innovation, right? Um, but but long story short, a design patent much more straightforward process, much less expensive than a utility patent, which is you know a much more elaborate uh, prosecution. It's a much more elaborate application really, you know, so, so first of all, distinguish between the two. Do I have design elements that I want to protect or is it really the utility of this item that I care about? If it's the, the design patent, you know, route, okay, cool. Do you have the money to do it? Do you, you know, can you enforce it? Great. Easy conversation. If it's the utility piece, there is a mechanism by which you can file what's called a provisional patent. It's basically, it gives you, it saves your spot in line, gives you a year to kind of, you know, get things sorted out. You've got a great innovative idea. Maybe you're starting to work on on bringing it to market, but you've got a, basically a year uh, where you'll have prior rights as opposed to everybody else where you can kind of sort that out and figure that out. So uh, if you do have something that's, that's the utility that you want to protect, you certainly want to speak to uh, someone and, and kind of evaluate whether or not a provisional would make sense before moving forward with, you know, a $10,000 investment for a full-blown utility patent. Um, But I would also say, don't don't look at intellectual property in a vacuum, right? So many people want to look at IP and they just look at patents or they just look at trademarks or they just look at copyrights. Really, I think intellectual property is used most effectively when it's used as wrapping paper, right? If you have an, an invention, something innovative and you can patent a piece of it, great. Also, make sure that you trademark the branding. Also, maybe there's some copyrightable elements. So start wrapping that layer of protection around it. You know, don't, don't just look at those as small little individual silos of what well, has to be patent or it has to be trademark or it has to be copyright. It could be all of them if you look at it the right way. And and, and frankly, you know, copyrights much more cost effective than patents, trademarks kind of in between uh, and really whatever capital investment that you have to protect your business to protect your brand, just making sure you're getting the biggest return on investment, the most bang for your legal buck uh, based upon the money you have in the coffers, the innovation that you have in front of you and what you care about, you know, in, in terms of enforcement. Now,
0: I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the copyright and images. So I think it's pretty prevalent in the e-com space that
1: uh, we were talking before the show about you know, say, go look on another platform and search your brand or your keywords and you see images and you know Alibaba and all that. Can you uh, maybe cover um, what to do if that happens
0: and maybe on Amazon and then maybe if you see it on another platform?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's a great question, Ken. And it, it's interesting because as Amazon gets a lot of salt thrown its way about, oh, they don't care about sellers and they don't do enough. And and some of that's true. But I, what I will say is that Amazon has a vested interest in making sure that they run a legitimate platform. And Brand Registry 2.0, where people you know are taking their business seriously, they're doing things that legitimate businesses do, like protecting their brands with a trademark, they gave them special benefits of, you know, the better listings and the more advertising and the brand enforcement desk, right? Um, as as, as that's, that's had a positive effect, right? So hijacking, as we talked about earlier, has actually you know, kind of been tamped down a little bit because, you know, those, the copycats and counterfeiters and the like understand, okay, that's a brand registered brand. I'm not going to deal with that because I'm going to get taken down. I'm going to go find some low-hanging fruit. That's helped the platform. But what I've seen is actually an uptick in just frankly more egregious copying of people taking product photos and just creating a new listing and just copying and pasting those product photos and then selling you know, a spatula with somebody else's product photos. Uh, similarly, eBay, you know, search your brand name, uh, your keywords on eBay, you'll see all sorts of your product photos pop up, product details pages pop up. Go to Alibaba, go to Walmart, go to other online platforms, put in your brand name, put in your keyword, and my guess is more often than not, you're going to see your product photos pop up and even your product detail page uh, details. What do you do with that if that happens, right? Well, those are all copyrightable works. So if you've been doing everything that businesses should do, you've registered copyrights along the way. The, the law, you know I kind of talked about, yeah, you know, I was coming into law about the time that the internet was becoming you know what it is. One of the things that helped spurred that were a lot of conversations that, you know, large platform providers had with Congress. They basically, there's something called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, right? And so you had large, you know, internet service providers at that time go to Congress and say, listen, we understand how copyright law works. We understand if we're hosting infringing content, we're equally as responsible as to whoever posted it. But guess what, Congress, like we're not in the business of really sorting through content to see if it's infringing or not. We don't want to do that. And if we have to do that, the Internet's not going to grow because we're not going to take on that risk. So Congress come up with a plan. Right. So Congress came up with a plan. They came up with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which basically says, hey, Amazon, hey, eBay, hey, Alibaba, if you're a large Internet platform, And someone comes to you under the penalties of perjury, you know, you know, hand on the Bible, scouts on and says, listen, I think this content is mine. I think it's infringing. I want you to take it down. If you as a platform owner have a mechanism and a process and a procedure by which you can receive those complaints and then take action on them very quickly you're absolved from copyright infringement. We're going to we're going to give you a get out of jail free card. You get to step out of out of the situation, which is exactly, you know what those ISPs wanted way back when when they were, you know, talking about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So, if someone steals your product photos, Amazon has a process where you can go and say, "Amazon, under the penalty of perjury, I think these sellers are using my product photos. You need to take them down." And I think my record is like 48 minutes from the time I filed a complaint to having another listing taken down, and it's not because I'm an amazing lawyer, and it's not because I was able to just draft the most beautiful takedown complaint ever. It's literally because Amazon's self interested. Amazon has the bigger pocket between Amazon and you know Joe counterfeiter, right? Like any lawyer with their salt's going to go after the deeper pocket. Amazon wants to be out of that situation, and so if they get a complaint. Under the penalties of perjury saying, Joe counterfeit or stole you know, my product photos, of course, Amazon's going to take action because it's to their own benefit. They get to absolve themselves of liability, so why wouldn't they? And so 48 minutes is, is a no-brainer uh, in terms of, yeah, we'll remove these other people and let them let figure it out. eBay has a similar uh, policy. Alibaba has a similar policy. Etsy has a similar policy. If you scroll down, whatever the platform is, scroll down to the terms of service, and typically... Uh, and most of the time, it's in the terms of service themselves. It's it's a copyright takedown policy, or it's the DMCA takedown policy. It'll show you exactly how to report infringement, what to do, uh, and uh, if if not, if it's not in the terms of service, sometimes some larger platforms actually have an intellectual property policy that's standalone. Uh, but just give that a look, work through the policy. If someone has taken your stuff you know, take them down. Like, you know, product photos are expensive. I don't know, you know, I don't take my own product photos. I pay someone to, to take them. Uh, they're, they're not inexpensive. I'd like somebody else to pay that fee if they want to drop ship my product or they, you know, they lawfully are able to sell my product for you know because they purchased it from me. Okay, well, that might be one thing, but take your own product photos because I spent a couple hundred bucks getting these uh, nice white background photos sorted and taken care of. Um, now, what happens if you're accused of copyright infringement? What well, if someone throws this at you? Well, the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, is pretty even-handed. If you think you have been wrongly accused, you can actually file what's called a DMCA counter notice. Now, it's not, it's not something that you do without thought. It's very serious. You basically are calling the other side's bluff. You're saying, listen, those people complained against me. They said I'm a thief, but I'm not. And I am so confident that I'm not that I invite them to sue me. And if they don't, in the next seven to 10 days... Amazon, you can put the, you know this content back up. I mean, you're basically inviting a lawsuit. So, you know, I don't want people to run around thinking that you can just snipe down everybody with these complaints. Number one, you have to. You're doing it under penalty perjury, so you don't want to go to jail. So you have to be serious about it. But then, secondly, understand people can come back and say, "Hey, listen." you know, Amazon can put me back up because I, uh, didn't copy your, your stuff, or I have an exception to being able to copy yourself and stuff. Maybe a, there's a fair use exception is what it would be called. Um, and I'm so confident in that, that I invite you to sue me, you know, you know, put up or shut up basically. Um, uh, but it is, I will tell you the whole, the entire DMCA takedown process, it's very effective and it's very it's very customer friendly in terms of accessibility and being able to use. I'm always happy to help people do it, um, but it's, it's navigable without having to hire a lawyer, which is a nice thing. And frankly, that's what it's meant to be in terms of giving people, whether they're sellers or otherwise, a mechanism to, to kind of police themselves online.
0: One thing I'd like to cover is I think a lot of times as solopreneurs, when you're you have five thousand dollars, and you're going to buy five thousand dollars worth of worth of inventory. You find yourself trying to do it yourself, and I'll give you an example. I filed my own trademark uh, uh, case, and it was a mess. It took thirteen months to get approved. I I picked a name that there was a very similar name out there. Uh, I it just was an absolute mess. I will never do that again. And so what would be your advice to somebody trying to think about, you know, what can I do myself? And when does it make sense to uh, pick up the phone and call an attorney?
1: Yeah, I, I'm going to kind of give you probably a, a different answer than most lawyers would would give you. And I, and I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm in business outside of the law because I understand what it's like to have a $5,000 budget. And I, I tell clients, especially selling a private label, you never want to do anything to the detriment of you having product in market. Because if you don't have product, you don't have a business. And if you don't have a business, having a trademark or having an LLC or having a whatever doesn't really matter, right? You've got to have product. Um, so really, the question is one around, you know, as you look at all the things that a seller needs to protect, they need to protect their personal assets. You need to be operating through a proper business vehicle as quickly as possible. And I'm talking about a limited liability company or a corporation you know as soon as you're able to make that investment you should do that because if your personal assets aren't protected you know your your house is on the line your car is on the line your personal bank account is on the line you want that removed from the field of play as quickly as possible great that's protocol number 1 protocol number 2 is really you know, kind of you, to your point david finding a brand name that functions as a trademark and then it, that's available right so number 1 you know a trademark the best trademarks shouldn't describe the products. Uh, They shouldn't even be suggestive of the products. They should be a fanciful, you know, made up term. You know, the best, the strongest trademarks in the world are completely invented. You know, the second strongest trademarks in the world are brands that brand names that are arbitrary. So things like Apple for computers, right? That's arbitrary. Apple, we all know what Apple is, but you know, computers, like you would think Apple and computers until they're put together and they're sold as a product, right? So coming up with a trademark that functions as a trademark, and then one that's available, you know, doing a clearance search before you do a full-on investment in a trademark application, before you actually bring a brand to, to market, I think is a really good early step because, you know, I had a client one time that, you know, they had just you know paid me to do a a trademark registration. The first you know thing I do is go and clear the mark. I make sure it's available and that no one else is using it. And they had a had a really weird name. It was so weird. I'm like, I'm not going to find any results. Like this one's just going to sail right through. I'll spend five minutes on this and then I'll move on to the application. And sure enough, like someone not only had someone come up with the same random term, the same made up word, but it was the same exact product that my client had just put an order in for. Um, and so thankfully, we were able to stop the presses, we were able to do a rebrand very quickly and then get her to market. But had she not done that kind of first step, you know, that, that clearance search, um, best case scenario, she would have gotten the product to market sell it off as quickly as possible, hope that other brand that's already fully registered with the trademark doesn't doesn't notice. And then, you know, redo some product photos, redo the branding, you know, kill that product detail page, create a new one. It would have been, you know, a little bit of a mess, a little bit of cost, but that's kind of best case scenario. She's certainly not winning on that. Worst case scenario, that, that brand, and it was a larger brand, is monitoring the space, and as soon as she gets to market, she sued for trademark infringement, and then she's got to defend the lawsuit, and then she's either got to settle or go to court, and like basically, her business is is dead before it even started, right? So that clearance search, making sure that your the brand name you've chosen functions as a trademark and is available, hugely important. You know, in a lot of circumstances, I mean, I would even do. I would even do that before you do an LLC or or incorporate, just because if you're bringing products to market and you're slapping a name on it, you've got to make sure that that name isn't taken because otherwise you're going to be doing a lot of course correcting later on down the road. Then once you get those things sorted, your personal assets are protected. You've made sure that your brand name is available as a trademark then you can start thinking about registration. I mean, brand registry should be done early days just because of the benefits that it gives you in terms of the better listings and the additional advertising, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a privilege. It's not a right. You don't have to have it. I know a lot of people that sell successfully on Amazon, they sell dumb, boring, basic products. They're not really the type that naturally get hijacked. They're not brand registered and they do just fine, right? Brand registry is further down the road for them. But as soon as you're able to do that, I think that's advisable Uh, And at that point, you've protected your personal assets, you've protected your brand. Then you've got to start thinking about kind of cleaning up your copyright stuff, right? The product photos are assets to your business, your retail packaging. As you get that created and designed, you want to make sure that you're taking ownership of everything in your business because you're either going to need that to fend off the competition later on when you become successful, or when you look to exit and you want to sell the business. You know, sell, you know, people who buy businesses, they want to make sure that everything is, you know, there's as little risk as possible. If somebody's going to shell out six, seven figures for an Amazon business, yeah, you have, have to have a great product catalog. Yes, you have to have great sales numbers. Yes, you have to have a great profit and loss sheet. But you also have to have your IP locked down. And that means registered trademarks. And that means registered copyrights. You're just more likely to get more for your business if you've done those things along the way than if you try to do it at the end or if you haven't done it at all. So again, never do anything to the detriment of products because if you don't have products, you don't have a business. But as I tell clients, make sure that legal is a line item in your budget and you've just constantly got a little money put in those coffers so that when you've got sufficient funds, you can do the trademark clearance. You can do the trademark registration. You can register the copyright. You don't have to do it all in one one go. Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, but if you do it a little bit along the way, you're just going to be you're going to be in a good spot.
0: So Robert, trying to get a kind of a pulse on the ecom space right now in terms of violations, IP
1: violations. So what are like maybe the top one or two calls you've been fielding from your clients? You know. Robert, I need help. This happened. This happened. I need, this, I need happened. Help. this thing happened. Yeah. Number one is account suspensions. Uh, that seems that there seems to have been a big uptick there. And, and this, is, this isn't this is so much IP related, but again, it goes to the legitimacy of Amazon's platform. And as sellers are creating their accounts, they're immediately being suspended and they're being asked for utility bills and they're being asked for um, you know, a business license, right? I deal with a lot of sellers who they have virtual businesses, right? That's why you sell private label. You want to work from your laptop. You want to be on the beach, you know, you know, surfing the internet and, you know, getting sales and doing all those sorts of things. Um, And that's become a challenge for a number of folks kind of understanding what Amazon's really asking for. Yes, they're asking for a utility bill, but what do you do if you don't have a utility bill in the name of your business? What if you're operating through a virtual address? What if you're operating through a registered agent, what do you do? And so I've seen a number of sellers, try to give Amazon what they're asking for, but really gumming up the process. Um, You know, when you get that notice as a new seller, Amazon's basically asking you to verify your identity, okay? So number one, your business license, that's not something with your city or your county, they're asking for your articles of organization. They wanna see your certificate of incorporation, show them that you're a legitimate business. If you have a utility bill, meaning water, gas, electricity, TV, phone, internet—the list kind of keeps changing a little bit. Um, and you, if you have that in the name of your business, great, awesome, perfect. Should be a no-brainer to get you up and running. Uh, if you don't, well, then you need to provide your personal uh, utility bill, and you need to explain to Amazon, "Hey, Amazon, I'm a real business, and here's my business license, and you can see my name on the business license." oh, by the way, I, I, you know, operate my business out of my personal residence, you know, here's the utility for my personal residence, residence, but you can see there's my name on the utility bill, there's my name on the business license, they're the same, I'm the same person, please open my account, right? Generally speaking, just being, keeping it simple, stupid, you know, giving them exactly what they're asking for and a clear explanation will help, you know, overcome that suspension pretty quickly. Where the process gets gummed up and, and starts to, to, you know, extend out weeks, if not months, is just, you know, throwing documents over, no explanation, no context, giving copies of passports when they haven't asked for passports, giving, you know, I live with my father. Here's the, here's my father's utility bill, but not explaining that, you know, you live with your father. Like, you know, just you know, being honest, being upfront, explaining in simple terms generally helps overcome that. So I've seen a, a big uptick in that. Uh, in terms of Amazon making sure that their their platform is is filled with legitimate sellers, which is a good thing for people who are already selling on the platform. Um, I've also, you know, the copyright thing that I mentioned earlier in terms of, you know, hijacking being kind of tamped down. And, and I give, you know, programs like Brand Registry 2.0 a, a lot of, a lot of uh, credit for that. You know, programs like Transparency and Project Zero, which are other, you know, brand enforcement programs that Amazon has. I think they've done a really nice job of kind of addressing that problem. But where they've fallen short, and I I suspect what they'll be addressing next, is kind of the the more generic, you know, copy and paste uh, copycat uh, thief that we seem to have on the platform right now. So, again, I'd circle back to that conversation we had about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, you know, monitoring the platform. And then when you see someone that's stolen your stuff, you know, taking action on it. You know, I mean, those are your assets. You have a right to uh, make sure that someone doesn't steal them. Uh, you know, take advantage of, of the process that Amazon presents to you and, and you'll file a DMCA takedown complaint.
0: Very nice. This has been incredibly helpful. Uh, we end every episode with uh, a fire round where we ask the same oh. three questions. Ken, you want yeah. to take him out with the fire round? Yeah, absolutely. Don't
1: take, Ken, don't take me out with the fire <laughs> round. <laughs> Are you ready, Robert? I'm, I'm, I'm as ready as I, I was born ready, Ken.
0: All right, excellent. I I see you have some books behind you on the on the shelf. You're ready for this. What what is your favorite book?
1: You know, it's not up there, but it's one that I'm reading for the first time, and it is it is past all my Tim Tim Ferris books, which I have back there, which I I love Tim Ferris. It's M J Demarco's The Millionaire Fast Lane. Uh, If you have not read that, as an entrepreneur, you need to. It will for me. It's articulated a lot of things that I've always felt in terms of entrepreneurship, and, and frankly, wealth and what wealth really means. Uh, it's an amazing book. And uh, I'm only a third of the way through it. So I can't wait for the the other two thirds. It's it's pretty, it's for me, it's been, uh, it's been groundbreaking.
0: That is a powerful statement that it, yeah. it surpasses Tim Ferriss's books. Yeah. I'm a huge fan. You know, I, I are...
1: I well, selfishly, I love Tim Ferriss, because generally, I, just being a lawyer, I read a lot of stuff, right? And so like, when I'm not doing legal stuff. Like reading is not generally something that that I'm inclined to do, even though I know I should do it. I love Tim Ferriss's stuff because he kind of chunks it out and it's consumable in small chunks. Uh, And it's a good message too. But uh, MJ DeMarco, I'm telling you, read it. It'll change your life.
0: Yeah. All right. Next up on the uh, list is what are some of your hobbies?
1: Some of my hobbies. Oh, geez. I don't have a lot. (laughs) Building businesses are a hobby for me. You know, my hobby right now is um, back in the day. I'll give you like a kid hobby. And then what I do now, I uh, used to be an avid autograph collector and memorabilia collector. So I would uh, spend a good bit of time sending baseball cards, football cards, basketball cards, um, you know, requesting photos from celebrities. I have a, I have a pretty large autograph collection from, from being a kid and spent a number of years doing that. Then I got into collecting um, New York Yankees memorabilia, so signed baseballs and game used stuff. I'm a huge Yankees fan, so that, that was a, a hobby. I haven't touched that for a number of years, so if you're interested in autographs or game used Yankees memorabilia, I can cut you a good deal. Um, here recently, it's been uh, playing around with Facebook groups. Um, and understanding how to grow Facebook groups and uh, trying to, to figure out a way to monetize those. And so I, I, uh, I'm always learning, you know, not necessarily through books, although I'm trying to do better about reading. But I took a course on how to grow Facebook groups, and I am the uh, proud owner of a Facebook group de- uh, dedicated to giving daily golf tips, even though I'm not a huge golfer. We've grown over, over to uh, 3,500 members, and they get golf tips every day. And uh, I'm just trying to figure out, a, I, I get a kick out of posting stuff in there, you know, I'll repurpose content from from YouTube and link to it. I'll give the golf quotes. I'll ask questions. They're just kind of growing communities. I, I think is a, kind of an interesting hobby of mine.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I'll have to go check out that golf group because I need all the tips I can. I can well,
1: get one every day. It's daily golf tips. So.
0: <laughs> David, do you want to do you want to round out the questions? You bet. Uh, what do you think sets apart successful e-commerce entrepreneurs from those that give up, fail, or never get started?
1: Ah, uh, gee, is there just one thing? If I had to, if I had to say one thing, it's determination. Um, you know, I, and I, I think everybody suffers from this, right? We live in a, in a time and a day and a time where we need immediate gratification. And if we take this course, by the time we finish the course, we'll just have millions of dollars. Or if I sell this product, it's going to just take off virally and, you know, I'm going to make millions of dollars. Um, life doesn't happen that way. Business doesn't happen that way. Um, you know, you will have failures and you will have success. And it, it, you have to be patient and you have to be determined. And you just have to kind of push through the uncomfortable and push through those failures to the other side. And if you're determined and you're willing to do that, you're willing to. You know, wait the inevitable amount of time that it that is going to be for some people it's six months for some people it's six years for some people, you know it's twenty years down the road as opposed to just you know oh, okay well uh, that didn't work so nothing works and I'm going to go off and just do something else. You have to be determined uh, to be successful would be my answer.
0: Very nice. And lastly, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely.
1: If you are a private label seller. Or an e com seller, and you're thinking about doing private label, you can head on over to PrivateLabelProtection.com. Uh, I have a business protection blueprint that you can download. It'll lay out in you know, the question we talked about earlier, like, oh, what kind of intellectual property do you need to think about? It'll basically lay out the four steps that you should be taking to protect your private label business. Uh, so, so give it a give it a give it a look. Give it a download. Uh, it talks about LLCs, talks about trademarks, talks about copyrights, and then talks about all the weird stuff that happens. When you sell on Amazon, like account suspensions, hijacks, and the like.
0: Very nice. We will post a link to that in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Uh, nice. Robert, I really appreciate your time. This has been a just awesome interview. And, and uh, to all of our fans, get a, get in touch with Robert uh, for all your intellectual property needs. Well, I, I
1: appreciate the opportunity to be on. Uh, I enjoy the conversation. I always like talking shop. And uh, yeah,
0: we'll, we'll speak soon, I'm sure. Very nice. Thanks, Robert. Thank you everyone for tuning in to today's Firing the Man podcast. If you like this episode, head on over to firingtheman.com and check out our resource library for exclusive Firing the Man discounts on popular e-commerce subscription services. That is firingtheman.com backslash resource. You can also find a comprehensive library of over fifty books that Ken and I have read in the last few years that have made a meaningful impact on our business. For that, head on over to www.firingtheman.com slash library. Lastly, check us out on social media at Firing the Man and on YouTube at Firing the Man for exclusive content. This is David Schomer
1: And Ken Wilson.
0: We're mm-hmm. out. Before you go, we wanted to share a new service that Ken and I have been using called GetIDa that has made us over $10,000 in Amazon reimbursements. The service requires no monthly subscription and GetIDa collects a small percentage of the money they recover for you. It takes less than 5 minutes to set up and works on all Amazon marketplaces. Go to getida.com, G E T I D A.com and enter promo code FTM400. That's F-T-M for Firing the Man 400 to get your first $400 in reimbursements commission free. How much money does Amazon owe you?